Uh, I heard a, a funny story recently I wanted to share with you about two young, mischievous brothers who were always causing trouble. And so their parents finally, at their wit's end, they finally asked the pastor to come in and, and put the fear of God in these boys. And so the pastor sat down with the younger brother first, and he wanted to remind the boy that God is always watching you. And so the pastor asked, where is God? And the boy was silent, scared. The pastor repeated, where is God? And the boy was still too frightened to answer. So the pastor is now getting a little frustrated. He said, where is God? And the boy ran upstairs. He slammed the door. He hid under his bed. And his older brother peeked underneath the bed and asked him, what happened? And the boy replied, now we're really in trouble. God is missing, and they think we did it. <laughs> Where is God? That's our big question for this morning. Where is God? That was, that was Jacob's big question and our passage for this morning in Genesis chapter 28. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to head there, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one of those as well if you visit the info bar. But while you're finding Genesis 28, let me remind you of where we are this morning in our story of the book of Genesis and in the life of the patriarch Jacob, Jacob. His name literally means heel grabber or figuratively supplanter, deceiver. Jacob was the grandson of the deceitful Abraham. He was the son of the deceitful Isaac. And Jacob didn't fall far from the tree, except that Jacob lied not to some pagan kings. He lied to his own father, Isaac, and he deceived his own brother, Esau. He's speaking of a pair of misbehaving brothers. And now Esau, having been tricked by Jacob, tricked out of both his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, you remember, as well as out of his blessing. Esau now hates Jacob. He is determined to kill him in revenge, but Jacob's mother, Rebekah, catches wind of Esau's plan. Rebekah is the biggest liar in the whole family, and so she tricks her husband Isaac a second time, this time into sending Jacob east to her family in Haran. And last Sunday, we saw Isaac finally capitulate and send Jacob out with God's threefold blessing that was once promised to Abraham and then conferred to Isaac and now passed on to Jacob as well, the promise of a people, a place, and a pledge of blessing. But as the story picks up back here in uh, verse 10, we're going to find not a confidently blessed Jacob, but a frightened, unsure man. This is soft, domestic Jacob, the homebody, the mama's boy, now exiled out into the wilderness, running for his life. Little does Jacob know that despite Rebekah's plan for him, that you know, she, he just goes stay a little while while Esau cools off and then she'll call him back. It will actually be 20 years before Jacob will return back to Beersheba. He will never see his mother again. She'll die in that time. Despite having just been blessed by his father with the promise of becoming a company of many peoples, Jacob is totally alone now. Instead of the security of the promised land, Jacob finds himself in the middle of the God-forsaken desert. 
And far from enjoying the blessing of Abraham, Jacob feels cursed to endure the consequences of his own sin. That's the thing. Jacob now lies in the proverbial bed that he has made for himself. Actually, as we're going to see, he doesn't even have a bed to lie in anymore. That is the extent of the mess that Jacob has gotten himself into. But here's the big message, the message of hope for us this morning, for you and me, friends, that when we are at our absolute lowest, when you are down and out, flat on your back, all alone, running for your life, in the middle of the desert, with nothing but a rock for a pillow, that's how low he is. Where is God? Do you know that God is right there with you? Because God is always with you. And God is especially with us. God draws closest to us in our times of greatest need, in our hardship and in our pain. And so we're going to praise God this morning for his presence with us. So would you stand with me as you're able for Genesis 28, reading of God's word. We'll read verses 10 through 22, this story of Jacob's ladder, God meeting Jacob at Bethel. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread it abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
as always this morning for your word. God, we thank you for your good promises, the promise of your presence. We thank you that it's not just a promise for Jacob thousands of years ago, but your promises still hold true for those who are Jacob's offspring today by faith in the same God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is our God. You are our God and your promises are for us. And so we thank you that you promise never to leave us, never to forsake us, that though even our mothers and fathers might leave us, you, the Lord, will never forsake us. We thank you that you're good and that you're trustworthy, that you're for us and you're with us. We pray now, Father, that if anyone here does not know your promise personally as a beloved child, adopted child of the living God, that you would touch their heart. God, I pray that you would touch all of our hearts. We all need to be drawn deeper into a sense of love and security and grace that you offer us this morning through this story of Jacob's Ladder. Would you use it to encourage us and strengthen us this morning? For our good and for Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here's your outline for this passage. Genesis 28 answers our big question, where is God? In four contrasting paradoxical ways. A paradox is a statement that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a deep, profound truth. Four paradoxes here regarding God's whereabouts that we see corroborated throughout Scripture. And the reason for these paradoxes and the classical Christian answer to the question, where is God, is to say that God is omnipresent, literally all-present. God is everywhere. We can boldly declare this morning that God is here in our midst, right here at 13250 South Outer 40 Drive. And yet, our brothers and sisters right across the highway at West County Assembly of God, whatever their North Outer 40 address is, not to mention every other church meeting at this very moment all around the world, not to mention every non-church part of the world as well. The entire universe can all simultaneously declare that God is here in our midst. God is all present at all times and all places. He is here and there. And that is a paradox. And based on each of these four paradoxes, we're going to conclude with three responses that God's omnipresence ought to inspire within us. Okay, that's, that's your bulletin. So number one, first, where is God? God is both over and amongst us. God is simultaneously over us even as he is amongst us. You look back with me at verses 10 and 11. We hear Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So place names are important in the Bible. Beersheba, we learned back in Genesis 21 with Abraham, it means well of the oath. Wells were symbols and sources of life in antiquity. Haran, by contrast, means parched or thirsty or even idiomatically to, to get angry. And so here is Jacob running as fast as he can away from the land of life-giving promise, away from the promised land, fleeing, and headed instead 
toward an angry, parched land. That's the symbolism. It's 500 miles journey through treacherous terrain. It's a multiple week trip by foot. But somewhere in between, we hear that Jacob stops for the night. Verse 11 just calls it a certain place. Why? If, if place names are important in the Bible, why? I think it's to highlight God's omnipresence. That it doesn't matter where, the middle of nowhere, the most remote part of the God-forsaken desert, GPS still today in 2021, might not be able to locate it on a map somewhere in the Middle East. Guess what? In that place, God is still there. So picture the scene with me. You're Jacob. You're running from everything and everyone you've ever known and loved. The sun is set, it's dark. The desert comes alive with noises you've never heard before. And that hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. Maybe it's just because you're cold. You realize in your haste to leave home, you forgot to grab a coat. But you collapse in exhaustion, you look up at the stars, you feel really small. As a boy, your father and grandfather used to tell you stories about the same God who made those stars appearing to them personally. But right now, God seems about as far away as the stars, as unreachable as the stars. God has never felt more distant in your whole life. Where is God now? Where is God when you, when Jacob, need him the most? You're too tired to even wipe away the tears streaming down your face. And you feel something else start to crawl up your face. You bolt up, you flick it off. What was that? A scorpion? A spider? It's too dark to tell. Remind you, you forgot to bring a tent as well. You're totally exposed to the elements of the desert floor. So you feel around in the darkness for something to use as a pillow. A stone? I guess that'll have to do. This is literally rock bottom. God, where are you? That's what we want to know, isn't it? When we endure our own dark nights of the soul. Where is God in this? Where is God in this diagnosis? In this cancer? In this divorce? In this wrongful termination? Sometimes it feels like God is as distant as the stars, doesn't it? And is silent too. Feels like you're crying out to him. And if he's saying anything back at all, it's, his only reply seems to be that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That doesn't feel really comforting at the moment. That's because God really is over us, friends. His ways really are higher than ours. His, his plans really are better than ours, the ones that we would have made for ourselves if we were in charge. But we're not. God is sovereign. And God is good all the time. But he's not distant. God is over us, but he's not distant. He is also amongst us. It's the paradox. 
verses 12 and 13. Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. This is the climax of the entire story, right here in point number one. God gives Jacob a dream, a vision of a ladder. Some translations of the Hebrew call it a staircase. This is the original stairway to heaven. Led Zeppelin plagiarized, right? It's set up on the earth, but its top reaches all the way up to heaven. And there are angels, hundreds of them, thousands more, traveling up and down, back and forth between the earth and heaven. Zechariah 1.10 describes angels as those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Psalm 91.11 says God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. In the New Testament, Hebrews 1.14 calls angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is where we get the concept of guardian angels from. It's biblical. In Acts 12.15, after Peter escapes from prison with the help of, you guessed it, an angel, the other apostles, he knocks on the door. They can't believe it's him. They think they, they thought he was dead. So they, they assume it must be his angel, his guardian angel. Did you know that you've got an angel? Did you know that? That God sent an angel for you personally to minister to you, to guard you in all of your ways. Did you know that according to the Bible, there's this whole other realm of existence, a spiritual world, coterminous with our own physical world that you and I work and play and live in every single day, that there are millions of angels and demons, by the way, all around us, roaming this earth, in this room, at any given time, and they are every bit as real as you and I are. They're just not as physical. They're spiritual beings, and we could even see them if God would give us the spiritual eyes to see them. It's true. It's the kind of stuff that the unbelieving world, like we get lapped out of the room for, for believing. And, but it's true. Read 2 Kings 6, the story of Elisha's servant and the angel chariots of fire. We just don't have the spiritual eyes to see them. But the mind-blowing part of all of this, the most crazy part about it, is that God actually cares. God deeply cares about what happens here on earth. Who are we that God is mindful of us? And not just mindful of us, but that God is willing to sacrifice millions of his angels created like us for his glory. They were created to sit around his throne through all of eternity to sing holy, 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 his praises, that God would say, no, we're going to have to set up some shifts in the choir. I'm going to have to build a, a ladder, a staircase, so you guys can go up and down because I care too much about my people down there to leave them on their own. I'm not that kind of God. The significance of the ladder is that God is not distant, friends. The God of the Bible is active. He is involved. He cares about you. And not just enough to send his angels, God himself is here amongst us. Where is God in verse 13? My ESV study Bible says, the Lord stood above the ladder, but then it's got a footnote, and the footnote says, or stood beside Jacob. Because the Hebrew preposition there, al, 
just means on. So the text literally actually reads, God is on the ladder. Does that mean God is on like above in heaven with a foot on the ladder? Or that God is at the bottom with a foot on the earth, one foot on the bottom rung? doesn't say. But I think that Jacob gives us a clue when he wakes up in verse 16 and he exclaims, surely the Lord is in this place. He doesn't say God is above this place. He's in this place. He's here. Friends, you and I don't have to climb the ladder to try and get up, get access to God anymore. Do you know that? In the ancient world, people thought gods lived in the sky. And so they would build their temples atop these artificial mounds that they constructed called ziggurats, with staircases ascending as high as they could possibly build them. Got a picture of that in Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel, the world's first ziggurat. We're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven. And that is what every single religion that humans have ever thought up has tried to do as well, isn't it? The five pillars of Islam, the Eightfold Noble Path of Buddhism, the 613 Mitzvot of Judaism, Baptism and Confirmation and Roman Catholicism. What are they? They're all staircases. They're all staircases that we've tried to build in order to climb our way up to God. Do you realize how absolutely ridiculous that is? The idea that I could somehow reach the perfect, almighty, utterly holy God of the universe who inhabits the highest heaven by simply trying my hardest, by simply attending church most Sundays and paying my taxes, that that is somehow going to, that is ridiculous. I don't have a shot, and you don't either, unless God comes down. Religion says build a ladder up. Revelation says God came down to you. When you didn't have a prayer of reaching God on your own, your best deeds barely get you off the ground. It is no less ridiculous spiritually to think that you could reach God with your good deeds than it is to think that physically you could build a tower tall enough up into the sky to reach him. Those ideas are equally laughable. And yet while you were laying there in a pile of your own rubble after all your bricks that you tried to build inevitably came crashing down on top of you. God came down while we were yet sinners with no hope of making it up to him. Christ came down for you and died on the cross. That's the gospel. Genesis 28 is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Jacob did nothing to earn God's presence in his life. In fact, he had done everything to earn God's abandonment. A God who judged us on the basis of our own merits would have taken one look at Jacob and said, next. But in the midst of Jacob's brokenness, God came down and he said, I'm going to bless you in spite of you, Jacob. I'm going to stay with you no matter how bad you screw up. That is grace, friends. That's the gospel. Number two, God is both before and after us. He's before and after us. In addition to the geographical answer to the question, where is God? We also need to locate God in time and history. 
chronological answer, namely that God is both before and after us. God declares in verse 13b, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God could have, of course, gone back even farther. He could have said, I'm the God of Noah, the God of Enoch, the God of Seth, the God of Adam. Before there was anything, Yahweh, I am who I am. I am the Alpha, the beginning, the source of all things. And verse 13b, the land on which you lie, I will one day give to your offspring. Jacob, long after you are but a distant memory, I still will be. I still will be blessing your descendants millennia from now because I'm the omega too. I'm the end. I am the final word. And so we need to bear that in mind this morning as well. That if you are going through one of those rock for a pillow kind of seasons in your life right now, just remember God's got the big picture in mind, right? We, we just see a glimpse on the timeline. He's got the big picture. God doesn't promise to bring nothing but good your way, but he does promise to work all things together for good in the end if you'll trust him. But along the way, your life is going to feel at times like one of those paintings that looks like, you know, ugly gobbledygook until it's completely finished in the end. Some of you remember Megan Clayton paints for us during some of our special worship services. A couple Easter's ago, she painted um, during the, the opening worship set of Easter, and I warned her ahead of time. I said, you've only got like 20 minutes to, to finish the painting. And like 15 minutes in, I was worried because she told me she was going to paint uh, a scene of the, the women coming to the empty tomb, but at that moment, it looked more like the aerial view of a dirty toilet. But sure enough, in the last five minutes, the image started to become clearer. And then right as the worship team was wrapping up their last song, she puts the finishing touches on it and then flips it upside down, right? Because a really good artist can paint the whole thing upside down so you really can't tell what's going on. Flips it upside down at the very last second picture comes into focus, right? That's what our lives are like sometimes. You might not realize what God is up to, why God has got your life looking like a dirty toilet bowl until the last five minutes, until the last second. You might not realize it until you get all the way to heaven. But friends, God is before us and after us. He's got the big picture in mind, and we can trust his promise that he is working all of it together for good. Number three, God is both beyond and with us. He's both beyond us, but he's also with us. Similar to point number one, but look at verse 14. God says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. In you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God essentially says, Jacob, my plan is so much bigger than you. You don't understand. It's not smaller than you. Like, I, I, I care about you too. In my grace, I've sovereignly written you into my massive, all of human history, redemptive project. Uh, but, but I'm making a people for myself from every nation and tribe and tongue, all declaring my glory throughout all of eternity. This is so much bigger than you, Jacob. It includes you, but it's, it's, it's so far beyond you. Jesus said, I've got other sheep. 
who aren't in this fold. Did you know there are going to be non-West Hillians in heaven? Did you know there are going to be non-evangelical Reformed Baptists in heaven? God's plan is so much bigger than you and me. I know we like to emphasize our personal relationship with Jesus in American Christianity. I know we like to read ourselves, our names, into John 3.16. For God so loved Kevin that he gave his only son. But listen, we need to be really careful that we are not making the gospel all about us because it's not. The gospel is good news precisely because it's all about Jesus. Praise God that his plan includes us, but that it goes so far beyond us. It's so much bigger than us. What a small, sad plan that would be. And yet, at the same time, God really is with us. Behold, I am with you, God says. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. God has just reiterated to Jacob in verses 13 and 14 his threefold people of, uh, promise of a people. He said, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, a place, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you, and a pledge in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But now in verse 15, Jacob receives a new promise. Not just a people, a place, and a pledge, but now he has promised God's very presence with him. I'm just going to keep the peas going. His presence with Jacob. And notice God's presence is always accompanied by two more things. His protection, I will keep you wherever you go, and his provision, I will bring you back to this land. I'm going to lead you and guide you, protect you, and, and care for you along the way. And when God does show up, when is it more often? When does God show up more palpably than ever for his people. It's when we need him the most. God's word is clear on this. God shows up most palpably for us when we need him the most. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 61, God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 2 Corinthians 1, 4, God comforts us in all our affliction. Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. God says. So if you are brokenhearted, if you are crushed in spirit, if you are mourning, if you are afflicted today, if you came in here wondering where is God in my life right now, I want you to hear the good news that God has for you this morning. He is with you. He's with you in your suffering. And he bled to death on a cross for you to prove it. From the splinters of the manger to the splinters of the cross, Jesus was and is Emmanuel, God with us in our suffering. Number four, God is both here and everywhere that we go. First, there is a sense in which God is uniquely here. 
Jacob wakes up in verse 16 and he declares, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Again, Jacob's like us. So often we don't realize God's right here with us. In our side. I didn't even know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the very gate of heaven. And there's something to this idea biblically of God's localized, God's special, imminent presence. This idea of sacred space. We're going to see it later in the Ark of the Covenant, housed in the tabernacle. We'll see it in the Holy of Holies, housed within God's temple, his dwelling place. And today, because of Jesus, we still have this sense of God's localized presence because God now calls us, you and me, all who have been born again through faith in Christ, God now calls his modern-day temple. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. You are God's temple you god spirit god's spirit dwells in you paul writes and by the way those are plural pronouns in the greek y'all are god's temple god's spirit dwells in y'all this is why southern english dialect is superior clearly <laughs> first peter 2 5 y'all are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house for God, Jesus said, wherever two of, or three of y'all are gathered in my name, he was southern too, there am I among them. Jesus is really here among us in a unique way on Sunday mornings that he's not Monday through Saturday. That is why some people call Church, not the building, but this gathering, God's people, we, we can say we're in the house of God. We are Bethel this morning. That's just one of the reasons why it's so important to be with the church on Sundays. And yet, at the same time, God really is everywhere. This is the paradox. Again, he's everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? King David asked, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. God himself asked in Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill all of heaven and earth? I'm everywhere, God says. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me. God warns Solomon, don't fool yourself into thinking that you could ever possibly box me in and contain all of my glory in a single building. I don't care how big you build the temple. And Solomon admits in 2 Chronicles 2.6, God, who is able to build a house for you since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain you? Who am I to build a house for him? A.W. Tozer, famous theologian, described God's omnipresence this way. He said, God fills heaven and earth just as the ocean fills a bucket which has been submerged in it a mile down. I love that. The bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds the bucket in all directions. He says, God is above all things, beneath all things, outside all things, inside all things. 
God is above, but he's not pushed up. He's beneath, but he's not pressed down. He's outside, but he's not excluded. He's inside, but he's not confined. God is above all things presiding. He is beneath all things sustaining. He is outside of all things embracing, and he's inside all things filling. That is your God, Christian. Amen? As you noticed, I didn't say God is everywhere in your bulletins. I said God is everywhere that we go. This goes back to the temple idea. In John chapter 1, there's a fascinating little interaction between Jesus and one of his soon-to-be disciples, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's friend Philip had told him, dude, we found the Messiah, you got to come meet him. And so Nathaniel was skeptical. And so when Nathaniel walks up to meet Jesus for the first time, Jesus remarks, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Allusion to Jacob already. Nathaniel replied, how do you know me? And Jesus replies, before Philip even called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what happened under the fig tree. Only Nathaniel and God know, and that's the point. But I believe that just like Jacob, it was probably Nathaniel's own dark night of the soul, because that's where God sees us and meets us most. I believe it was Nathaniel's rock bottom. But in any case, Nathaniel knew instantly that Jesus was special, and so he exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You remember what Jesus said? He just calmly replied, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He said, You will see greater things than this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. Do you understand what Jesus just said? Jesus just claimed that he is Jacob's ladder, the angels of God, and every human being who has ever and will ever live must ascend or descend on the Son of Man, on Jesus. Jesus is the stairway, the only stairway to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. Jesus is the gate of heaven, the narrow gate through which the Bible says few will enter. You need to repent and believe in him today if you want to be one of the the few. You can be saved today. Repent and believe in him. Trust in him as your Lord and Savior for your salvation. But if you have, for all who have, listen to this beautiful promise, all of us who are in Christ and who Christ is in, if his Holy Spirit is in us, in you, then we are his temple. We now take God wherever we go. We're like a portable temple, like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You are Bethel. You are the house of God. God really means it then when he says in Hebrews 13, 5, He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you because now I'm with you, I'm in you. Now, in light of all of that, how are we to respond? 
to God's presence, to his omnipresence everywhere, to his imminent presence, to and with us specifically. Three very quick takeaways in closing that this passage leaves us with. Number one, we commemorate God's presence. Because we are a forgetful people and we want to remember those times when God has shown up in the deserts of our lives, when we were under our fig trees, when we were at rock bottom, we commemorate his presence. Did you notice in verse 18 that Jacob took the very stone that he had used as a pillow, the symbol of his pain and his hopelessness, that is what he consecrates and uses. He makes it into an altar on which to worship the Lord. That's powerful. Some of you may be familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a popular Christian evangelist and advocate for people with disabilities. She's been a quadriplegic for the last 50 years now. But I want to read you an excerpt from one of her reflections on her disability. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair with me into heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new perfect, perfected glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I will stand next to my Savior holding his his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising and the blessing of that wheelchair. That wheelchair was a gift. I never would have chosen this gift, but since you chose it for me, I'll take it as a gift, hard as it may be at times. It's the gift that causes me to be weak, and the weaker I am, the stronger you, I discover you, my Savior, to be. What is your wheelchair? What is your stone? Never forget those times and those places when God showed up and met you and rescued you in your moments of deepest despair. Praise God for his mercy. Number two, we commit ourselves to the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Verses 20 and 21, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. Now some scholars make a big fuss over the word if there because the Hebrew can also be translated since. Since God will be with me and keep me, that makes Jacob sound more like the new and improved man of faith that we want to believe he is instead of the same old bargaining trickster that he used to be, but frankly, and maybe this is just the sinner in me who wants to believe that Jacob's not any better than I am, but I prefer the if translation. Because as much as I would like to believe that I have the faith to stand on God's promises, even if I haven't seen them come true in my life yet, more often than not, most days, I still look a lot like doubting, bargaining Jacob. God, if you will be with me, if you do this, if you will protect me, if you will provide for me, then I'll worship you. And the reality is, friends, our worship is always a response to what God has already done for us. God has 
always got to be the one to make the first move. The Bible says we love because God first loved us. We commit ourselves to him because he first committed himself to us on the cross. Our worship is always but a response. We all need to recommit and rededicate ourselves to the Lord this morning. Lastly, number three, we contribute. We contribute. Jacob pledges to give a full tenth of all that God has given him, a tithe. That's where we get the idea of a tithe. And really, that is like the bare minimum that we could give back to God, right? We talk about time, talent, and treasure in the church. Do you give a tenth of your treasure back to the Lord, your income? Do you give a tithe? Do you give a tenth of your time to him? Do you give a tenth of your talent? Do you spend a tenth of your talent serving the Lord ministry? This is our proper response of worship, brothers and sisters. Commemorate God's presence in our past. Commit ourselves to God's plan for our future and contribute to his purposes all along the way. I leave you with this benediction, blessing of God's omnipresence. May God be above you to bless you. May God be below you to support you. May God go before you to guide you. May he go behind you to protect you. May God be beside you to comfort you. And may God be inside you to give you his love and joy and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Friends, I want to give you just a moment now to respond to the grace you have heard proclaimed the good news of Jesus making the first move, committing himself to you. Would you take a moment now to respond, to recommit yourself to him as the Holy Spirit leads you? Take a moment.